Well, good morning and welcome to my podcast. I am Philip Crawford and I am so glad that you tuned in and joined me this morning. You know, the last couple of episodes I have talked about righteousness, what it means, what it means for us in our standing with God and how it goes beyond that to the point where we are now sons of God with legal right to all he has promised. And last time, we also touched on how this affects fear in our lives. So if you have listened to the last episode, how are you doing with changing the way that you speak? You know, I want to encourage you, stick with it. It will make a huge difference in your life. It'll change your mental state. You'll find yourself with less anxiety, and you will find that the things you are seeking God for will start to show up more and more in bigger and bigger ways. All you had to do was get yourself out of the way and let God take over. If you ever want to see a confusing and divided list of opinions, Google the phrase, when Christians sin. I did this, and I found page after page after page, with each result seemingly disagreeing with the previous. Ideas about whether or not Christians can sin, ideas about eternal security, ideas whether or not someone who commits a sexual sin is even saved. Seriously, it's all out there. And if you grew up with that unworthy state of mind that I talked about a couple of weeks ago, then maybe you think that in order to be truly righteous, you cannot sin. Well, this is actually a really tricky one to tackle. Not only are there people who think that way and the ways that I mentioned, but there are people who emphatically say that Christians absolutely sin and they mess up, but don't worry about it because God forgives us. And then they go about living a life no different than before they became a Christian. I've heard that some preachers don't like to talk about forgiveness because it makes people feel like they have a license to go out and sin. And you know what? Today, more than ever, it sure seems like there is an awful lot of truth to that. But here's the deal. Christians absolutely can sin. This is often a big cause of shame and despair for new believers. They've made this radical change in their life to follow Jesus and leave their old life behind. And then it can be devastating when they do something they know to be wrong. Are they no longer righteous? Do they have to get saved again? Well, to answer all these questions, we have to first ask, what is sin? And definitions typically say something along the line about being um, an offense or a transgression or an immoral act that is against a moral or divine law. So what is the law of God? Well, remember, Jesus told us that all of the law is fulfilled by doing two things. Love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. In so doing, you fulfill all of God's law. God first, neighbor second. Doing that meets all the other requirements of the law, which outlines sin. But I think sin is even more simple than that. You know, sin is a really selfish thing. 
you do something you want to do because you want to do it. It's selfish. Did you know you can't sin for somebody else? Sin is a selfish act that you do for yourself. In Genesis, when Adam and Eve first sinned, they didn't do it for the serpent. It was because they wanted to do something that God said not to do. Eve did it first, but that didn't mean Adam had to. Adam absolutely could not have eaten the fruit, but Eve had done it. And so therefore he wanted to know for himself. He chose to sin because he wanted to do it. He didn't do it for Eve. He didn't do it for the serpent. He did it the moment he put himself first. And you know, sin always has a consequence. Death. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. It also says that through one man, sin entered into the world, and through sin, death entered into the world. Now, in the short term, it's not talking about dropping on the ground where we have to uh, dig you a hole and bury you in it or anything like that. That's not exactly what we're talking about. I mean, you have sinned and you're alive and listening to me right now. So clearly there is something else here going on. The word death means separation. When we die physically, our spirit separates from our physical body, and the body is dead. It's separated. But there is another kind of death, which is spiritual death. And to be spiritually dead is to be separated from God. The Bible says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We weren't physically dead, but we were dead. We were separated from God. Of course, there is physical death tied to this as well. You know, I work with teenagers and going through the book of Genesis, I get the question, how is it that the people of those days lived for so, so long? Well, the human person wasn't meant to die. We were meant to live forever. Now, the spirit of a person exists forever because you can't cause a spirit to cease to exist. Now that the spirit can be dead because it's separated from God who is life? Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right now that the spirit is separated from life, it will bring death to the body because the spirit is the life of the body. Well, if death is the consequence of sin, something has to die in order for that sin to be covered. And this is why, under the old covenant and the law of Moses, they had to sacrifice animals and do covering with blood. Blood was the sign or the evidence that death had occurred. Well, if we are separated from God, we aren't in right standing with God. How can we be in right standing if we are not together with him? So it was our sin that brought about our need for salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus, which is what restored us back to God. This is easy stuff, right? All Sunday school things I'm sure you've probably heard before. Um, if you haven't heard any of this before, feel free to head on over to philipcrawford.org. Send me a message and I'll be more than happy to talk about it and answer all the questions you might have. But the question still remains, what if a Christian sins? Are they back at square one? Do they have to start over now? 
Well, no. And, and yes. But, but no. It, well, and, and still kind of yes. But mostly no. But, but kind of yes. You see, 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay, so that's good news, right? But a couple of things here. God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us, but the first step is on us. The first word of that sentence is if. If we do our part, he is faithful to do his part. So what is our part? We have to confess our sins. You have to be willing to come back and say, I've missed it. So our act of confessing our sin and asking God for forgiveness is, in a sense, like coming to God for salvation. It's kind of like starting over. But just because you have allowed sin to come between you and God doesn't mean that there is complete separation like there was before you accepted Jesus the first time. Wonderful. So I don't have to worry about what I do because then I'm not totally separated, so I'll still go to heaven, so it really doesn't matter what I do. Well, no. If you have kids, you know that they will mess up and do something that they should not do. It doesn't matter the age. They will do something against the rules, something they should not have done. But they are still your kid. But until some steps are made to correct what they've done, there is some strain on the relationship. But what if one day they just made the conscious choice to disown you? They have had it with the rules of the house and they are out of there so they can go and do what they want, when they want, how they want. It would break your heart. But if they want to leave, then it's their choice to leave. They can do it if they so choose. They have that right. And it's the same way with God. Today, we live in this world of what I call hyper grace. Don't really worry about sin because God is love. And a lot of things expressly forbidden in Scripture are readily embraced by people calling themselves Christians because they have this idea that God is love, so their actions and behavior and choices really don't matter much at all. But here's the thing. God is love. Absolutely, he is love. But God is also holy. His identity as love does not cancel out his identity as holy. He is equally holy and equally love and equally several other things too. You know, water is a good and safe thing that we need in order to live, but there is a lot of danger with water also. Water causes drownings and floods and stuff, obviously. Well, in 2007, a radio station in Sacramento, California, had a contest that involved drinking a lot of water without going to the... 
Well, in 2007, a radio station in Sacramento, California, had a contest that involved drinking a lot of water without going to the restroom. Whoever made it the longest won a Nintendo Wii. Get it? Wii. Don't go to the bathroom. Uh, Yeah, like I said, it was kind of stupid. A mother of three had entered the contest and over the course of a couple of hours had drank two gallons of water. Well, after not feeling well, she dropped out of the competition and within hours, she tragically passed away. Um, While we need water to live, we can't ignore the rest of the truth about something. Ten staff members uh, were fired from the station as a result of this tragedy. But, you know, I can imagine the planning meeting. I mean, what's the harm? It's just water. It's good for you. You know, there is a condition called hyperhydration. We know about dehydration, um, which is kind of an in-stage hypohydration on the way, but there is a condition called hyperhydration, which, if taken to extremes, is lethal. But no one bothered to check to see if such a condition existed or if it was real. And this tragically led to a mother's death. Well, you see, God is love, and we need that love. Without it, we would have no hope. But God is holy, and his holiness demands that we do our part to live up to his standards. It's his holiness that sets the standard, the line we cross to enter into sin. But there are people out there who say that sin doesn't really exist anymore. John was writing to Christians. He said, if we confess our sins, evidently, sin was something that could be committed. He was writing to Christians, said if we confess our sins, right? If there was no longer a concern about sin... Why would he start discussing when we confess our sins? But it's because of his love that he will forgive us and cleanse us. His love made forgiveness available. His holiness makes sin possible. And it is our responsibility to make it right again when we fall short. So, what is sin? And what isn't sin? After all, Christians seem to have a pretty wide definition of what sin is these days. And while I have no specific answer, I do have three things for you to look at and consider. Number one, ask yourself, does it put you first and God or others second? Obviously, Lying, cheating, stealing, sexual immorality, murder, so forth. These are easy to see when you look at them this way. Two, when you are reading the Bible, especially the epistles, these are the letters that come between Acts and Revelation, look for the imperative sentences. Remember imperative sentences from grade school? What is an imperative sentence? Well, remember, there are declarative sentences which just make a statement. That is a blue car. There are interrogative statements 
which ask a question, is that a blue car? And there are declarative statements, which are sentences that end in exclamation points. Wow, a blue car, which is, of course, one of Homer Simpson's best lines of all time. And I'm not easily impressed. Wow, a blue car. And there are, of course, imperative sentences which give a command. Stay away from the blue car. Now, if you're a super nerd like me, then you know that those sentences have an understood subject of you. You are the subject. In other words, if you can put the word you in front of a sentence like this and it still makes sense, that is a command. So when reading, look for things like this. If you see something that is a command and you don't do it, guess what? You've done wrong. Just like, you know, if you told your kids stay away from the blue car and they didn't, well, you see the point. And the third thing, you know, I see a lot of people who try to justify their old life, their old habits, their old, as I call them, BC days, their before Christ days. Quit looking for ways to justify certain behaviors. People see sexual immorality as just a normal thing with today's culture. So the Bible isn't really all that strict about continuing on with staying pure. Or alcohol. You know people who don't read the Bible have never read more than a handful of verses. They're suddenly deep theologians when it comes to the consumption of alcohol. It never fails when you find someone trying to hold on to alcohol and they'll say, God really doesn't care if we drink, right? I mean, after all... Jesus turned water into wine. Ugh, yes, he did do that. But one, where is that an indication that we have carte blanche when it comes to alcohol? And two, the word wine doesn't mean a fermented beverage necessarily. That's the meaning that it's taken on almost solely today but the word itself, at the time scripture was translated into English, even as recently as, you know, 70, 80, 100 years ago, if you pull up a dictionary that old, it can mean juice. Wine can mean juice just as much as it can mean fermented, liquid from the vine. Don't you remember when Jesus talked about someone not putting new wine into old wineskins? While he was talking about the new birth, the reason he could make this comparison was because it was a true fact. If you placed new wine or juice into an old skin, there were fermentative agents present which would cause it to ferment. Fermentation produces carbon dioxide, leading to blowing up the skin like a balloon, which would cause it to burst. Yet, Jesus referred to this, in our English Bibles anyways, as new wine. If this was an alcoholic substance, we wouldn't have the bursting to consider. It would have already fermented. So every time alcohol comes up in a conversation, people always go to Jesus turned water into wine, not knowing that wine means juice just the same way it means the alcoholic drink that they're thinking of. And besides that, Remember at the wedding party, Jesus turned several large vessels of water into wine. And if all of these were alcoholic wine and they would have been drunk by everybody there at the wedding party, everybody there would have become extremely 
drunk, extremely intoxicated. Yet the Bible speaks against drunkenness over and over and over and over and over again. So if Jesus turned all of that water into alcoholic wine, there would be serious contradiction in the scripture. I mean, perfect, sinless Jesus setting people up to fail and commit sin. It would be a major contradiction for the rest of scripture. And thank God there's no contradiction in the scripture. And I don't want to get off on just that one example. It's just one way people will essentially make something up in order to have a reason to hold on to some particular sin. People have always had an excuse for why their sin isn't their fault or why it's okay. Starting in Eden, Eve blamed the serpent and Adam blamed God for the woman. But here's the thing. If you're unsure about something, seek out the actual answer in the scripture. And while you're taking the time to seek it out, stick to one guideline. The Bible tells us that whatever we do in word or in deed, or in other words, in anything that you say or do, we are to do it as unto the Lord. If you can throw down shots of whiskey to the glory of God, or if you think some inappropriate sexual relationships or some profanity here and there and all of that is a way for you to bring glory to God, or how about getting on social media and complaining about everything wrong in life? Are you bringing glory to God? You don't need to know that there is a command in the book of Philippians that tells you to think on the good and lovely and noble and right things, because if you knew that command, you wouldn't make those posts. But you also wouldn't make those posts if you thought about the command that whatever you do or whatever you say should be unto the Lord. And I know I mentioned it, but don't even get me started on profanity. I'll be talking about that someday really soon. But even without any other knowledge, is your profanity a form of speaking that you would speak unto the Lord? If it's not, you need to repent. So here's the thing. We confess our sins and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He removes all that separates us from him. So pick an area of your life that is falling short of the mark. Pick something this week that you can begin to tackle. Maybe it is with your mouth. Instead of speaking words of discontent or, or even worse, words of vulgarity, how about you at least say nothing? And when you miss it, Come to God for forgiveness and cleansing and rededicate yourself not to make that mistake again. Well, I want to thank you for listening again this week. For more information about myself or Philip Crawford Ministries, be sure you hop on over to philipcrawford.org. Next week, I'll be looking at the question, must Christians sin? 
God bless you. And as always, tell someone about Jesus this week.